You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why, why we do this to ourselves. Oh, fuck. I need a reason. Or do I? Or do we just admit that we love this stuff? I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 53, World Building 301. Listeners, welcome to season three, our season three opener. We are so excited to be here. Two seasons. Two years ago, we had this crazy, stupid idea, and people were like, "Yes, do that." We had enablers who were like, "Yeah, you should, you should do a podcast," and then we're like, "Okay, let's, yeah, sure." And here we are, two years later, starting our third year, and that's, and it's, my goodness, it's worked. <laughs> I, I I still am kind of shocked about that. Yes, I'm shocked and delighted every time anyone like comments on it, <laughs> retweets stuff. It's like, wow, you're actually listening. It's really cool. Nerds. <laughs> I love it when you see that sort of random thing where like somebody put out just like a call of like, hey, what are some podcasts I should be listening to if I'm writing? And people are like, you should listen to World Building for Masochists. And I'm just like, yes. <laughs> We're helpful. It's all I really want to be is helpful. Yes. And and you listeners, if you would like to be helpful, we could actually use a little bit of help ourselves. Our dedicated scribes have been hard at work for the past two years, making sure that this podcast stays accessible um, by creating transcripts of the podcast every episode, and they could use some more help. So if you are at all interested in being a scribe, um, a fantastic volunteer position that does get you early access to each and every episode, we would love to have you on board. Um, just come join us at our Discord. You can also shoot us an email at worldbuildcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or need some direction on how to find the Discord or anything like that. Any other fantastic announcements? Cass, I know that you have an appearance scheduled here. I do. I just found out recently that I'm going to get to present a session at the Virginia Writers Club Symposium, which uh, is going to be titled Choose Don't Presume How to Level Up Your Sci-Fi and Fantasy World Building. I will be cribbing a lot of the things we've talked about on this podcast <laughs> and condensing them into a one-hour lecture. It is virtual this year. It's usually, you know, somewhere in the state of Virginia, but this year anybody can come. So if you go to virginiawritersclub.org, you can sign up. I, I, it's uh, August 6th through 8th. I am at 11 a.m. on the 7th. Woohoo! And it's a symposium. That sounds yes, so very fancy. fancy. <laughs> I'll put on my pearls for it. You can, you have some news, Rowena. Yes, I realized in all of our excitement surrounding the end of our second season, I forgot to mention that I sold another book. They're going to let me keep doing this. Um, Yay! So, Yay! <laughs> Orbit <laughs> bought um, The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, which is a historical fantasy that 
combines fae lore and turn-of-the-century women's rights stuff and more about historical farming than I really expected to include. But that's what happens when you world build, is all kinds of delightful (laughs) surprises. So, yes, I'm pretty pleased about that. I'm delighted. I can't wait to read it. That sounds amazing. Sounds very exciting. And and now when, when we talk about, you know my book i get to finally talk about it it's really exciting it's always it's always good to be able to it's so weird with this business because the thing that's in your brain right now is the thing that like people aren't even going to be aware of for like two and a half years and then the stuff that that's coming out now that left your brain a long time ago (laughs) and you're like oh wait now i have to talk about this thing again with like you know like i'm and you are super passionate about it but not as passionate about it as you were three years ago isn't that how it always goes also i'm ashamed to admit i forget stuff yeah there is that (laughs) there is definitely that and marshall you are also going to be guesting at a con coming yes i am going to be one of the special guests at this year's armadillo con which is of course my local austin con it's i believe it's gonna it's gonna be an in-person con in october they're like like we're gonna do it we're gonna be in person which is why it's they've been like dragging their heels about making their their formal announcements about stuff because they're like can because we want to really do it because first they had to of course you know settle things with the hotel so they could actually do it in october and then now that they have they asked me to be a special guest which i was very happy to say yes to because special guessing a special not just guest. an average guest Yes. A special guest. So there's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be October 16th through 18th. And I'm excited, especially because, you know, it's always good to have a con where you can, where you just have to drive 10 minutes to get there. Not that I don't love travel, but I love not having to travel too <laughs> and finally i have been made aware that um hugo voting has opened for all of you Worldcon members who have a vote and of course as we have squeed about before we are nominated and um not that you you know are obligated to vote for us as your favorite fan cast but there are a lot of really fantastic nominations this year my reading slate has just like tripled because this all looks amazing um so keeping up with the these geist out there of what's happening in sci-fi fantasy. Um, I have a feeling we're all going to be talking about some of these books and short stories and novellas pretty soon here. If y'all are are members of Worldcon and you still have time to become a member of Worldcon, either a full participating member, which means you come out to DC and see us in our finery and regalia when we, you know, either accept our defeat or accept the award. Whichever, whichever happens, um, and we'll do either with grace and joy, and um, uh, or you can do it. Just get a supporting membership, and thus you get to vote and get to read all the cool stuff that got nominated. And either one is great. So, or do none of that and just say, "Hey, this is a great podcast. I'm just going to listen to it." That's cool too. All of these things are cool. If, if you can hear this, you're cool just for listening to us. That's And that's the truth. <laughs> and because you're cool and listening to us, we are doing something uh, special to integrate with our third season kickoff. We are doing a giveaway of some of our materials. You'll get signed books, notes, other goodies. Um, we're opening that up today. So go look for details on the website and on Twitter to get 
all the information about what's on offer and how you can enter and get some sweet, sweet world building for masochist host swag. Well, excellent. I feel like we are off to a good start on season three already. Um, but if we dive in, we started out this podcast. Our very first episode was kind of a 101. Like, what's your basics of world building? Um but if we kind of go back and launch back into the early questions that we asked, like I'm I'm just kind of curious to answer them again. Like what does world building mean to you if you defined world building? <laughs> You'd really think we all would have thought about this some. The, since we do it a lot. Since we do it a lot. And we had these notes to look at <laughs> all week long. This is the central preoccupation of our of our writing career in, in a way is is the world building aspect of it. Well, it's one of those things, it's like, you know, how does a fish define water in some ways? I, I just it's the space I live in. It's it's creating the the environment of a book in the broadest possible sense of that word environment. You know, it's it's everything that surrounds your characters and that they're steeped in it's what they're used to and so the world building is the act of making all that and i think for me to the act of communicating it like and that that may be pushing us beyond 101 level um and i should just put a pin in it but i think that the idea of combining the, the concepts of okay what is this cool world or the cool things about it and then how am i going to convey those in some meaningful way and i think that that translates whether you are writing, creating art, gaming, you know, anything. I think that that the idea of how do you convey it kind of gets to come into play too. Yeah. And figuring out the parameters of which whatever you're going to be playing with cuz in theory writing should always be playing in theory. It shouldn't be grueling, mind-numbing work, <laughs> but you know, sometimes it is. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh setting those parameters and then how you teach those parameters to to your audience through the process of the writing that's i mean that's what it is to me so when when does world building fit into a project for you like when do you world build i know we've talked with this a lot but i think in like a really basic 101 level how are the ways that that can work it's always the first step for me because i can't i mean i've said this before but like i cannot figure out what the story even really is going to be until until I, you know, set up the sandbox and know what's going to be happening, know how it works before I can know what's going to happen within it. But it's also, it sets, without doing the world building first, I don't know the tone. Uh, when I was doing theater, one of the things we did a lot, especially with one company I worked with, is that first rehearsal is just about figuring out the world of the play and knowing how things are going to work and things are going to be presented within the context of what you're doing on stage so that everyone is on the same page and everyone is in the same play. I don't know if you've ever seen a play where it's clear all the actors are not in the same play, but you know it can be <laughs> it can be really clear sometimes. So. I think world building is that same thing of making sure everything is in the same world uh, that like you don't have you know, like 75% of it is going to be like serious drama of people dealing with serious things and 25% is wacky farce and like that doesn't quite work because then you have these weird tonal problems that never 
quite come together or something like that. Those are, that's why it's always the first step for me is figuring out everything that the story is going to be in. So then we know what the characters in the story can do. For me, it definitely also starts early, although I often begin with more of a general aesthetic and then I'm figuring out what happened in this world to get it to this point. Like, why does it look like this? What is the shape of, you know, ancient Rome? What is the shape of an early modern city, but it's queer norm? Like, how did I get to there? How did I get to this image that I have in my head of the clothes and the buildings and the way people interact? What are the bits and pieces that build you that that scene? Sort of like you would say, Marshall. It's where the puzzle. Where, where are the puzzle pieces that fit behind that picture and get it to where it's going? And I also I need a map. I can't start a project without a map. Like <laughs> at some point or other, I have to draw that and just be like, I need to know where in space these people are, even if it might be something that doesn't end up being relevant for the reader. Like I gotta know. I gotta know where in space they exist. I always need that map too. I'm plus I'm just a map junkie. Yeah. Yeah, me too. What I think is interesting about both of those, even if the process is slightly different and the timing slightly different, is that it's about the tonality and the aesthetic. And what does it feel like for the reader when you immerse them in your world? Like when you are immersed in the story, what's it going to feel like? How is the reader going to be like surrounded by not just the story and the characters, but by the world itself? Um and I think that that element of feeling feeling surrounded is probably where I start too, because I'm I'm I don't have to build the whole world like Marshall does. I'm probably a bit more like Cass in that I have a feel I'm going for an aesthetic, an idea, and the storyline and the world can kind of develop in tandem with each other um, and feed off of each other to some degree. But it's you know I've got a feeling of what kind of what kind of immersive experience I want to give the reader. Um, if I'm going to plunge them into my world. And that's kind of the heart of where I start, I think. It's creating that establishing shot in a movie um, or the opening credits in a TV show. Like, what is going to set the reader's expectations? What pieces of the puzzle do I need to have in order to put that together? So speaking of expectations, I feel like our tagline for this podcast is Choose Don't Presume. And if you're joining us for the first time or an early time, maybe it'd be helpful if we define what we mean by that, which is that when we have elements of a world that we are making active choices in them instead of just presuming it's going to look the same as their fantasy worlds or look the same as um, our very general interpretation of history, because of course we also have talked about on here over and over that history is multi-layered and multifaceted and often has surprises. Um, but that idea of making an active choice and that whether you're sticking with something that looks a bit more traditional or you're turning it all inside out, upside down, going with something unique and different, that it's a choice. Um, so here's my question on the 101 versus 301 level. Like, do we really mean every time? What do we mean by that? The question of choosing versus presuming is often about challenging yourself in terms of your preconceptions and what your defaults are because traditional fantasy is loaded with defaults that I think a lot of what we talk about here and a lot of what the goals of what we're trying to do each of us and that we're hopefully encouraging other current and future fantasy writers to do is ask yourself 
why am I going at these, def- just presuming these defaults instead of at least choosing, okay, I'm explicitly going to do this with these defaults. I'm explicitly going to have, say, you know, monogamous heterosexual marriage as a norm within this culture or something, right? Instead of just like, well, I just did that because isn't that what normal is? And you should really ask yourself why you thought that's what normal was or something like that. Each of these little things that we do so often out of, out of just that sort of sense of presumption. Yeah. I mean, I think that you could very quickly drive yourself insane, truly choosing everything. Like you're writing and you're like on the green grass, wait, is grass green in my world? Hold yes, on. And like, you can have some fun, you know, games that you can play with yourself doing that at the same time. I, I don't think any of us means that every choice you make has to be that act of choice. But just like I would say your basic 101 level is acknowledging that everything is a choice to some degree. That when you have had green grass, you are in fact choosing for plant biology to work similarly in the world that you've built as our world. Like that's something that you did. And that's okay. That's an okay choice to make, but it's still a choice. Right. I feel I feel like lots of the big presumptions that we, we tend to take for granted, even those I can imagine exceptions to. You know, we presume that this book exists in a world that has a concept of language, generally. I have read a book that did not make that presumption. It was dinosaurs and information had to be conveyed in a very different way because they didn't have language. But that was a very clear, big choice that that author made. And with things like that, if you're going to make that kind of utter world reshaping choice, you got to commit to it. And you got to commit early. Um, Some other things, you know, about how, you know, biomes work, how chlorophyll works, how your cosmology works, you know, how how many moons and, and things you've got. You can play with that, and I think we see that a lot more often in science fiction than in fantasy. But once again, you either have to make it like the thing about this world is that it has 17 <laughs> moons and, and that creates tidal storms and things. Like, you either make it that, or you kind of gloss it over the way a lot, I think, of like sci-fi TV does. Which is like, yes, this is the ice planet, moving on. <laughs> We're not going to go into why it's the ice planet. We're not going to talk about how far it is from its sun, whatever. It's just the ice planet. Just leave it alone. Just keep going. Um, The level you want to engage with each of these choices may vary depending on what you want the point of your story to be, what tone you're going for. Is it the point of the story or is it just something adding to the story or that story takes place within? Yeah, and I think that some of the, the, the leveling up from the 101 to the 301 level is the knowing how to do that and when to do that and the the ways that you can make more subtle changes that still let you write the story that you want to write where plant biology works the same but maybe culture is a little bit different and lets you do something different but yeah just kind of interrogating the idea of choice and choice being active and a part of your world building strategy even if that choice is like, yes, all characters are human and being human means human. And that's, you know, we're not going to push at the boundaries of that at all. And that basic animals and plants that we know here on Earth are also going to be on this Earth. And that grass is going to be green. Horses are going to have hooves and rabbits are going to dig burrows. Like these are just things you just that way you're not 
building all sorts of extra work for yourself that may not necessarily add depth or color or interest to the story you're writing. But accepting the fact that you're doing that because you want to focus on other elements of the world building that are going to be the more interesting things. And so why break your back figuring out things that, you know, how, you know, how it's going to work having all of your leaves and grass be purple and the different <laughs> what the different Krebs cycle is going to be with with that form of photosynthesis and like you can do that but is that what your story is about and does that actually help or do you just presume grass is green great moving on so if we had like a 101 starter pack like what basic elements or self-aggrandizement moment here which episodes of ours would you say that are like the topics that you have got to pay attention to the 101 basic you have to think about it the first thing i'd jump to based off of the conversation we just had is deciding how far is your world from our physical world how far is it from a moment in history that you may be inspired by is it really close to either you know the modern world or to a particular time period with just a little bit of a shift or is it very 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 different um is it a medieval european world but x y or z um based on on your whatever you're looking at as your inspiration starting there and then sort of breaking it down into other things from that Deciding how much work you want to make for yourself is probably the first question to answer. <laughs> and then after that, I look at things like, I was thinking about like my top three, I think would probably be government, family, and tech level. Your accessible level of technology is going to make a fair few other choices for you based on communication and trade and, and weapons and things like that. And I include magic in tech, like is your magic at a certain level? Is it part of your technology? Right, the like interplay that. of magic and tech is is a huge yeah. element. Yeah, yeah. it's I, I include that's all the same umbrella as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Um, and then government and family are sort of the the public and the private realms that your characters are going to be existing in. And if you at least get a basic idea of you know you, I think when you start out at one on one level, you don't have to necessarily get into the nitty gritty of the parliamentary system that they're using, but <laughs> knowing is it a representative government or is it a monarchy or is it something else? Is your family unit more or less the, the so-called nuclear family that we think of, or is it multi-generational? Does it include people that aren't biologically related to you? Figuring those things out because those are the spaces that your characters most often inhabit, I think. So for me, I, I've been thinking about this more and more as I, you know, learn more doing this podcast and also in the process of both like doing all the world building and writing for velocity and then also as i'm starting the process for things that i have the idea of doing down the line of like what's the order i need to figure things out and i broke it down that i need to know the first thing i do is where so like i need the map like that gives me a sense of like what the place is physically. And then the next question is when, and that's about like figuring out tech level and figuring out what's happened before and how we're getting to how we get to like where people are on 
both a technological level and on a cultural level, if that makes sense. And then who, in terms, in a broader sense of who the who the different people are that populate this world and what their mindsets are. And then the how and what questions of like, how do things work? How, how does magic work? How does that, you know, affect the other aspects of the world? How, how many moons are there? How many does that, does that affect all the other things in there? And then what is, what are the sort of just special extra things I'm adding into it? It's like, and it's this, and there's dragons. That's a what question. And that's going to, (laughs) that's very, and then why the why questions for me are how do these things interact in a way and how do, do those interactions affect each other in that sort of cascading effect? Yeah. I think that the interplay is really important and why it's so hard to answer this question because everything affects each other. Right. Right. Like for me, I think with the giant caveat that some stories demand that you look at something first, right? Like some stories have some element of the plot or the characters that just demands like, I have got to look at how magic works before I do anything else and figure that out. For me, because it kind of comes back to the idea of what do I want the world to feel like? What is this aesthetic? What does it feel like to get dropped into this world? It's this interplay for me of the environment, the biome, where in geographical space but not just geographical space like what's the climate like and how does that work with what kinds of animals and plants you have how does that play with then like the tech level and um length of time these people have spent there how much have they changed it like how much have they adapted this environment and in what ways and that can blow up all kinds of questions like, you know, has has colonialism played an effect in this world or, you know, to what extent does magic ameliorate natural stuff that um, people would usually use technology to um, work their way around. So getting that feel of like, like, how does it feel to live in this space? Not just the natural environment, but how have people changed that natural environment is probably where I like basic bones start and then... In order to write a story, you have to have characters and characters come from cultures. And then you have to start to play with what do those cultures look like and what do they, how do they affect the character and how do they affect the story? So once you've got your 101s, your basics, how do you take the world building deeper? And I think that we've already like hit up a major one, which is the interplay of these elements and the cascade effect, as you said, Marshall, of like... Once you have one thing, it's going to affect things in other disciplines. Yeah, I think figuring out the little ways that that web is built of the interconnections between the, you have, you know, something about the terrain and then something about the, you know, the food that's grown and how that affects the cultural identity in different ways. I was watching something just the other day that was talking about Dutch culture and how because so much of just being able to live in the Netherlands where much would have much of the land that you're actively living on would be actually, you know, underwater, except for like that these people have all worked together to like build dikes and, you know, other things to like actually raise up land for them to live on that there is this sense of 
everyone being responsible for each other and everyone working together and that is a key element of their cultural identity is this sense of responsibility towards each other and but that's that's a cultural identity that's born from the physical characteristics of their land and so thinking about things like that of how you can use you know what they're what is around them and the that defines who they become as a people. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you have those those connections between nature and culture, and you have it between cultural elements and how family systems work is going to affect how people think about how government works or how education works and, like, all kinds of things. I think it can be a really good exercise in thinking about this to, like, watch nature documentaries that talk about how ecosystems work. Like I was just watching, um, I think it was one of the Planet Earth series. I don't remember which one, but there's a certain kind of butterfly, like the blue Alcon butterfly that only has like only lays its eggs on a particular kind of flower. So if that flower weren't there, like the butterfly would just, they would all, it would disappear. But what's even crazier is that the caterpillars are hatched from their eggs and they end up getting taken into anthills and are raised by ants because they exude a scent that makes the ants believe that they are, in fact, like baby queen ants. So they get pampered and raised <laughs> by the ants. And like so this whole web of like intricate, if this particular flower was not there for the butterfly and then the ants were not right there with the flower that all interconnects and then the grubs, it's just this crazy, like, what piece do you take out of your world building that is you know that's the equivalent of the the flower or the butterfly or the ant like how are these all playing together in a way that that they are interconnected that that tightly and not that all of your world building has to be interconnected that tightly but so much of our world actually is interconnected that tightly that it can be a good like mental exercise to be like how how are all of these things reliant upon each other have i made them reliant upon each other in a way that makes sense for me, it's often a case of chasing down the dominoes I've knocked over by by choosing that one initial difference in a world. So, like, completely hypothetically, if I was going to say, okay, I am going to write something that's based on 14th century England because that's standard, you know, bog standard fantasy fare, except I'm going to decide that the Catholic Church doesn't exist. Maybe it never coalesced, maybe... All those various heresies, and there are so many. <laughs> the Gnostics took all. over. Or the Albigens, you know, like, oh, there's so many different ones. Maybe they all have a certain amount of power, and so there's not one central church, and maybe there's still pagans hanging out in some places. You know, like, what does that then touch? How does that touch government? Because being crowned by a pope was a big deal. How does it touch land ownership? Because the Catholic Church was a phenomenally huge landowner at that point in time. Um, how does it touch ideas of medicine and, and who got to study medicine and who had access to other areas of study? Flicking one domino can have such a huge effect. And so I, I often just find myself just sort of thinking like, okay, where are all of those tendrils? Where do all of those tiny little changes land me? And then what kind of world am I now operating within and how do my characters fit into this world 
I, I that's often awful also where I where I find characters is is in making all these changes and realizing well, that's super interesting. I should have somebody who does that because that is new and different and, and something unusual to a reader, but it would make perfect sense within all these dominoes I've knocked over. So letting I, I let the world building drive things like that sometimes too. Um, I don't always start out with an idea of the plot or the world or even who all the characters are. I find them as I'm chasing down these tendrils sometimes. Well, and I think that's really an important thing to remember that one small change affects so many other things that you can't make one change within a world without the whole web being disrupted in some way and rewoven. And like, I will totally cop to the fact that I completely overanalyzed the Game of Thrones seasonality thing that like, if you have really long seasons, like, well, then, you know, how do plants survive? And how do animals uh, manage to hibernate for that long and stuff like that? And most people won't, but I did. But that's always also where a lot of the fun in making those choices can come about. Um, Like you just by taking whatever the whatever, say the because the environment is like really sort of hot and stifling and not a lot of wind, then you all the houses are built with big open things so that, you know, know, at least whatever breeze there is can can blow through and keep you cool. And if that's the case, then is does your culture say have a sense of what privacy is or are you expected you know is it normal to just be doing whatever you're doing and everybody can see you because you know that's just how that's just how things are and the the idea of like oh i need to go into a closed room to do something private people would be like oh then you're doing something wrong aren't you (laughs) if you have to go if you have to not be seen what you're doing like and have that then be some of the central tenets of your of your culture's morality you know you did something wrong if you don't want people to see it have all those things interconnect together in how you build the culture and then like if there are really important people do people just sort of like hang out outside their window to watch them eat rice or something you know like the most mundane boring tasks do those become spectacle because you have access to these people i don't don't know like there's there's so many places you could play with that and and in doing that, you can create something equivalent to, like, Instagram culture, but in your fantasy world of, like, you know, these are the cool people who you just go and just see what they're doing because they're the, you know, they're the influencers who who are who are worth watching. Well, I think that that that's fantastic. And I hate it. Oh, God, what a terrible idea. Well, I think that that brilliant yet terrible. It's I think that that feeds into another, I think, kind of basic tenant of taking your world building deeper, which is that like humans are going to human and some of them are going to be very comfortable with whatever the norms of society are and some are going to rebel against it and some are going to be like puritanical about it, even if there's no real reason to be puritanical about it. Yeah, there's one in every crowd, you know, and so I think that that's one spot that you can kind of 
not only take your world building deeper, but have really good opportunities for for plot and character development too, because not everyone is going to react to the world that you've built in the same way. Even if you're talking about just one society, not even getting into the fact that you can have a fantasy world with multiple societies that are coming into conflict with each other on what they think about what should be normal, what should be acceptable. Um, even within a society, humans are typically not homogenous. No, I mean, within a family who likes to work with the door open and who prefers to work with it closed and do they see the other as too open or too closed off or too private or whatever? Like that can be a place that you start getting conflict between your characters too is, is in who adheres to which norms and how. Some reason that just made me think of that deep space nine episode where they go to Risa and like Risa is like the, the, <laughs> the, the it's, it's the sex planet. <laughs> it's the sex planet. I mean, <laughs> it's the sex planet, but it's, you know, it's, it's the tropical vacation planet, but it's the sex planet, you know, and it's it's orgy central. It's in as much as they could show that on, you know, first run syndication in 1980s and 90s. 90s, but that's what it is. Yeah. But there's the episode of Deep Space Nine where they go there. There's then this like little puritanical group who's just mad that this place exists and that it means that people aren't really ready for like bad things to happen if they're going to the sex planet and just having a good time and and so they like show up to protest its existence it's like dudes there are bigger problems in this galaxy bigger problems in this galaxy than all the people boning <laughs> but that's their point there are bigger problems and you shouldn't be here to bone you should be dealing with the bigger problems. like at least I need to go to the sex planet because there are all these other problems. Like, that's why Starfleet officers go there so much. It's like, gosh, I've been saving the universe for like six straight months. I've got to go get laid. The Will Riker story. <laughs> but yes, things like that. Who objects to, to norms? How do they object to it? What are their reasons for objecting to it? Because people usually have reasons. They may not be good reasons. But when someone bucks tradition... Um, there's some justification behind it, mostly. Unless there are just, like, teenagers who do it hormonally um, <laughs> as part of human development. <laughs> that happens. But when it's a movement, when it's something that they really devote themselves to, what's the justification? Why have they, despite growing up in this culture, come up with a different idea? For good or ill. You know, like, where did, where did that come from for them? How do they explain themselves to other people? I think that's where you get really nuanced characters and that that non-homogenous society, like you said, Rowena. The, um, that's where that comes in. Not just that they are this way, but that they have some reason, in, at least in their own heads, for being this way. Which then can lead to how the society you're building is changing over the course of time because you have one system and then you have hormonal teenagers who are like no that's wrong because we don't want to do it that way and then once they're adults then their way is now the new way and then their teenage children are like <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you why don't we go back and that's a fun thing to play with too of the sense of how how those things shift over time because movements happen and and countercultures happen and then become the main culture and because everyone thinks they can do it better than their parents there's that <laughs> clearly clearly i can do it better than the people who came before me so one thing that i feel like i have become more aware of over the past two years of doing this podcast 
is another take your world building deeper element that is um, sensitivity. And I think um, both our our panel that we had on Don't Be a Fantasy Racist and Elsa, who came on and talked about um, disability and inclusion, um, the idea that you can build the most airtight, perfectly logical world, um, but people in this world are still reading it. And so the idea of being aware of how tropes and inversion of tropes and different stuff that you can do is is being read and is whether you intend it to be or not part of a larger conversation. And it's one of those things that I, I do think about a lot in terms of, you know, <laughs> I do think about this a lot. Like I, it was on the forefront of my brain while writing Velocity. And in this case, I'm writing a book where I'm showing this colonized culture where there is explicit institutionalized racism based on you know what your heritage is and that immediately places you in a different very stratified position in the social in the social order and i knew i couldn't just be like yep there's racism and just leave it at that like i needed to <laughs> because you know how often is there the thing of like well i'm just being realistic and we we that's not necessarily you know be doing the good thing so i made a point of doing my best to in, investigate that and handle it with the sensitivity it required and i haven't had anybody yell at me yet but you know there's still <laughs> i'm still willing to accept that that what i did may have missed the mark for some people and that they will be upset and that's understandable and hopefully if that's the case i can learn more and continue to do better next time well and you know i think that reading is a creative act and whether you're talking about reading sensitive elements like race or gender or disability or anything like that or just reading what color the grass is reading is a creative act that people bring their own experience into it and you can't control or correct for all of it and i think that that's one like really humbling thing for us as writers to have to kind of grapple with that we can do our absolute best but we can't you know be writing for absolutely everyone's experience that there are ways of seeing the world and ways of understanding the world that you know we're constantly learning so like humility is a thing <laughs> the next step after choose don't presume really is think about what your choices mean yeah and what effect they're going to have on real people real readers deciding to also separate yourself and the narrative view from individual characters' perspectives, too. If your characters have racist or homophobic or anti a particular religion or something, framing that in a way that shows it is of their world, but you're not saying that means it's a good thing. It's just of their world. And this, this is the thing I think a lot of us grapple with because we don't tend to write perfect worlds. Yeah. And what's perfect even going to look like for every different person, right? Um, being sensitive to the message the narrative is sending as separate from what the internal plot necessarily itself might be. And that's, that is, that's sort of, I think that's, that gets up into our, our 301 stuff. Because that, again, becomes about tone and how you communicate these details. 
it's it's tough it's craft that we all keep working on yeah there's there's times where i see the argument out there of people saying you could have chosen anything in your fantasy world because you're making it up so why didn't you just choose a world with no sexism or racism or or homophobia or anything like that and i think that's a valid question but i don't think the answer is necessarily that that's what you should have done because it depends on this kind of story you're telling but it is that is a valid a very good question to ask but i i I don't presume the answer also because you might be wanting to tell a story of a culture that has these same problems because sometimes that's the case but again do it as a choice rather than a presumption and i think part of that choice is also choosing am i the right person to tell this absolutely am i the right person to frame this issue based on who i am based on my experience based on my privileges based on my various intersectional you know lack of privileges like where where do i the author exist and is this my story to tell or is it is it not it might be a neat idea but i'm just not the person to tell it and so i just going to put that idea on the shelf and stay stay in my stay in my lane a little more you know like i'm not going to try to write a book from a jewish person's perspective because i do not have the necessary experiences and and frame to place that in i want to include jewish characters and things i write i want to you know not erase them from my worlds but that's not my story various other things are my story but that one's not and and you know that's just an example of being aware of that as you're building the world as well and also sometimes it takes that sort of like honest assessment of like do i have just the raw craft and skill level to pull off the idea that that i have here in in addition to am i the right person to even attempt to tell the story and to have the humility to say you know it's not i'm not i'm not there and i'm not that person <laughs> it's not always even about you know like your your lived experience and your privileges yeah. or whatever sometimes it's like i don't have the scientific knowledge to tell this particular kind of story yep wish i did that'd be cool i'm not good enough at math to be good enough at science to tell this story (laughs) couldn't figure it all out couldn't put it all together moving on to the next idea well and i think that that like that element of crafting is like that's part of the level up right that's like the self-awareness is part of the level up from the first dabblings to the you know beginning to attempt mastery level is is knowing your limits the more you know, the more you know that you don't know, I guess. So if if we think about the craft element of this, like we've talked a lot of the cerebral, how we think about it, but like how do we actually do it? How do we get it on the page? Um, and I know that we've, we've had some kind of basic 101 ideas of like how do you actually get it on the page? Um, and we've talked a lot about like the iceberg that you kind of just show a portion of what you've done and a lot of the things that you're doing that you've worked out and thought about and planned out are invisible and they're just supporting the part that's being shown. We've talked about letting your characters kind of do the work for you a lot. Um, and we've talked about avoiding your super obvious info dumps. But like, how how do you take that to a next level? Like, how does the world affect your storytelling or affect how you show what you are building into the world i think a big element of that is getting a solid understanding of what that information 
even in terms of information is that your readers need to know like i think on a world building level your readers need to know what it's like to live in this world for your characters they there there was uh, an interesting discussion about world building on twitter a few months ago where somebody was talking about you know understanding the difference between world building and lore and a lot of times when people are like you know oh this book has too much world building what they're really talking about is there's too much lore of like here is like the story of this god or here is the backstory of this and it's stuff that has nothing to do necessarily with the story you're telling but it is just like i've worked out all this stuff and that's where a lot of what we consider info dumps to be because they are just here is raw information about the world rather than this is what it's like to live in this world yeah i think definitely the difference between the the like raw dump like here's a bunch of raw material and now you as the reader need to take it and figure out what to do with it versus having that information integrated within the story and kind of woven through in areas that like lets the reader experience and see and walk alongside and kind of understand it there's an element of how much work are you asking the reader to do? Um, and we t- we've talked a lot about on-ramping, like the idea of how much do you have to teach the reader, but also just the idea of how much work are you doing in terms of making them integrate the information that you're giving them with the story itself. And the dump forces the reader to do that work of integration, which um, not that there have not been elegant and interesting info dumps in the history of fantasy, but again, typically, typically our craft is not there to make that (laughs) functional. (laughs) Well, it's the difference between reading an RPG manual and reading a novel. The RPG manual is going to have all kinds of information in it. Lots and lots of different details, little tweaks, tiny things that may or may not be important. Because its job is to give you those options. As a GM or a player, maybe very few people use this one little thing, but it's cool for the people who do. But if you're writing a novel, whatever's in there, someone needs to be using. You know, some figure in your world needs to be using the thing. You can't just mention the thing and and then drop it and move on. Because then the reader's having to do the work of like, wait, was that thing important? Did I need to know that? Whereas even if it's just something that, that you know, background characters are casually interacting with, that fits into the establishing shot. That fits into the aesthetic, letting them know sort of where they are without making them wonder and guess and be like, do I need to keep track of that detail? Do I need to remember that, that this king was important 50 years ago? Like, what's, what's the level of memory that you're also asking your, your reader to carry from page right. to page. Right, and I think that that's a, a huge element of developing the craft of showing world building is you can certainly put things in your story that are just there for texture and just there to help the reader feel the world and experience and do those fun things that fantasy and sci-fi do so well. But you have to do it in a way that that reassures them that this was just a taste a smell, a experience. This was not something that you need to file away because it's an important part of the plot later. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's a skill that comes with practice more than anything else, probably. It's also tough because not every reader's ability to synthesize that information is the same. Right. There, there's wild variance there. And 
no matter what you do, some people are going to think you did too much of it, and some people are going to think you didn't do enough, and you yeah. just got well, to roll with it. Ability and also just enjoyment. Some readers enjoy a yeah. dense, detail-filled world, and some give people me. want give something that's me. very sparse yeah. and very, you know, just give me a couple details, and then I want my story. And both are totally legit ways to read and write fantasy and sci-fi. Like, that's that's cool. That's fine. Um but I think that accepting, like, this is how I'm writing, or this is how I'm writing this story, because that can vary and change depending on what the story is and what you want to write. Like, I think a lot about, like, the Chekhov's gun of it all when you're showing the stuff in your world building of which of these things are explicit to pay off and which are not. And to bring more of a theater metaphor to it, you can build an intricate, well-designed set with all sorts of little details that are just gorgeous to the eye or you can have just a black box set with you know with bare walls either way you still got to put the gun on the wall and you got to do it in a way that people will know that's the important thing that is gonna pay off later and that's a lot of the big challenges how you present these things like this is the part this this is the thing that you all need to pay attention to and the rest of the stuff it's just fun, cool stuff that just looks cool. And which ends up where? Doing that in a way that doesn't then break your world. Because I think that's a, a lot of the other problem is people will just throw lore, throw different kinds of magic in, and then not notice, not do the that interconnective work to f- be like, oh, I just broke my world with, with, <laughs> with this bit right here. Part of the writing craft is knowing how to create that mental spotlight or that mental camera focus on the important mm-hmm. prop, the important character, um, while still including the background information. But that's that's definitely a squidgier thing to get your mind around and to practice doing is honing that spotlight that calls the right attention to the right things. So here's a question. Have you found the world that you are building affecting your actual prose? And not just in a, like, I want to avoid an anachronism, so I won't use this term that wasn't invented kind of way, but even like the way that you are presenting in the story, like how, how you write and what kinds of sentence length or vocabulary or things like that. Or is that just me? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I think a lot about just what, a singular word can mean in terms of the world like not just like does this fit in tone or whatever but also like in using this you know like i've joked before about like you know what does the word marathon mean if you don't have a city in greece that somebody ran 26 miles from but just also the sense of like does having this word within this world make sense beyond that in terms of all the various bits of tone I'm setting. I think, I think there was some, again, another like little Twitter argument that, that's been, that, that's <laughs> came up from something like this where somebody responded to us of like, just write, you know, you shouldn't think about this sort of thing. You should just write it and then, you know, and then fix it in editing. And it's like, what even is the process of writing if it's not choosing exactly the right word to fit the tone of your sentence and that's part of under again going back to understanding the world you built that what words 
are even appropriate for that world. And that's a lot of the tone setting that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, we, we do. We talk about that a fair bit, about what words you choose on that granular level. I've mentioned, I can't remember if I mentioned on, on this before, that in the Oven Cycle, I avoided words like ghost, ghastly, witch, because they just felt too obviously Germanic for my very Latinate world. Which in one way is ridiculous, because I'm writing in English, which is the most bastard language you can come up with, and... <laughs> Much of its DNA is Germanic. I use what, you know, I use the word what. <laughs> That's Germanic. But it just feels different, right? There's a connotation to some words that just, it it makes me bump. And it might not make every re reader bump, but it makes me bump on those words. So I think about it on that level. But I do also, like you said, Rowena, I think about sometimes the cadence as well. And it's not necessarily in every scene, but in scenes of heightened emotion especially it gets a little more lyrical i am thinking about latin poetry in some of these scenes even if i'm not directly referencing it i am thinking about those patterns i am because i'm me thinking about the rhetoric that these guys use when they're making speeches it is a very conscious choice every public speech any of these characters make is consciously rhetoricized because that's part of their world. They don't talk like that in every conversation they have in the book. It's a public thing, and, and that is where it fits into the world building. That's where it fits into the way they interact with their culture and their society. So I do, I think about, I think about it on all those levels, sometimes more consciously and heavily than others. But I do think it's important. And, and Marshall and I got tweaked on Twitter together. <laughs> Some of the people being like, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, okay, well, I think it does. And <laughs> you can choose how much you want to dial it up or dial it down. But I do think it matters to think about. Right. Because like one thing I was like, I balked at using the word ghost, I think at one point, just because like, is this even a cultural concept of ghosts existing like and do i want it to be and if so then what does that mean for for the people in this world if they think about how do they think about what might or might not happen when you die and is there some interstitial state of death where there's going to be a ghost and if if not then you shouldn't use that word and things like and things like that i think about a lot perhaps too much because i'm <laughs> complete dork but that's why we're here on this podcast yes. no in um in in my new book um i'm finding Oof. myself paying a lot of attention to how i am writing kind of like the normal world versus um when i'm writing the interactions with the fey world like i'm changing my language because i'm indicating difference and kind of an uncanniness and so there's there's more layering of the language and there's more a metaphor and simile because nothing is quite as it seems with the Fey world. So you kind of have to have this element of, well, it seems this way, but is it really? And conveying that not just with what I'm saying, but how I'm saying it to sort of indicate a level of difference between two different worlds that I'm building. Um, so it's been kind of fun thinking about world building and prose being linked in a more like 
nitty gritty toolbox kind of way than just how am I using my prose to convey my world building. Something I'm thinking about right now in in my other project, the, the Shakespearean influenced one, is do I want to commit to the informal pronouns? Uh, thou, thy, thee. Because it is that is a cultural signifier. It has a huge amount of meaning. It is also a steep on-ramp for a reader. And I had been leaning very much against it, and then I finally read The Goblin Emperor recently, which uses multiple pronouns of address to great effect. So the question then becomes, once again, about my skill level. Do I have the skill to, um, to bring the readers along with me on that? And... I haven't decided yet. I'm still I'm still playing with that in my head. It comes down also a lot to the point of view within whatever you're writing. I was thinking about this a lot with the one I have coming out in the fall, where my point of view character is smart, but undereducated. So just sheerly thinking about her actual vocabulary when talking about certain things, like, like is this even a word she would think to use, let alone... You know, does she know it or not? Would it be would it be the word that comes to her in the first place in her point of view? Like I have one point where she's dealing with I mean, just she's dealing with goats, but she's never seen a goat. So how do you you can't just say goat. I can't just say goat because she doesn't know what that is. How do you convey the essence of goat? <laughs> yes. <laughs> without the word. Yes, that was the, I mean, that was very much what I was thinking. In, in writing that bit of like what how does she see these things that she's like well it's kind of like a sheep but you know but not really <laughs> <laughs> i will happily have my goats beta read that part for you marshall and I'll give you some <laughs> feedback on what they think those pages were delicious <laughs> <laughs> i feel like we are well past our hour at this point so is there any wrap-up thoughts that God, I feel like this is where we should have some, you know, like, pearls of fantastic wisdom to drop. But instead, we're talking about goats. I feel like that's a really good metaphor for us, actually. (laughs) That's probably true. (laughs) Sometimes you're going to have something brilliant, and sometimes you're just like, how do I convey goats without the word goat? When in doubt, just write a goat in. Yeah. Include a goat. I think, you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to swing back around to having a big idea, it would be there is no end level to these conversations. You know, we've sort of talked about 101, 301. You keep learning as much as you do it. You keep learning more with every story you attempt, with every new character you're building, with every new world you play in, with every book you read. I mean, I get fantastic ideas from everything I read. It makes me think about my own work in different ways. So that's, keep doing that, listeners. Keep thinking about both your own works and the works you engage with out in the world and what choices they're making. Look for the choices. Look for where the choices are happening in the media you consume. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you 
overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on July 7th, where we'll be talking with author PJ Manny about building cyberpunk worlds. We really hope you liked this episode. If you do, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. Because I'm bisexual and I can't sit in a chair.